0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Central Wired podcast, and thanks for listening in. Make sure to stay connected with us throughout the week at centralwired.com or on Facebook and Instagram. We hope this week's message meets you right where you're at. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Glad you're here. Um, If you're my generation, that reminds you of James Taylor. Uh, But the previous generation... That's Buddy Holly. And we're going to be talking about generations uh, for the next month. This is a multi-generational church where everyone of every age, every color, every culture, every kind of person, even Packer fans, belong. I love you guys. Those of you that are watching online, we're grateful you're with us. If you're home and sick, stay there. Um, Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, you are a faithful king, and we ask that you speak to us now your word into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Hey, did I tell you about the time that um, I met Robin Williams? Okay, if you've heard it before, pretend like it's a new story. It's about 20 years ago, and he had always been like my favorite uh, comedian, comedian, actor, performer, TV personality, and we're in Columbus, Ohio of all places. And my Debbie and I, and I don't know who else was with us, but we were coming out of a restaurant in the evening, and this teenage girl runs up, grabs me. Happens all the time. She starts turning me around in a circle, dancing with me and saying, I just saw Robin Williams. I just saw Robin Williams. And I'm like where is he? And she points down the street, walking over there. So, I forget about my wife and my friends. I take off running. And when I get to the corner, I can see him on the other side of the street about a half a block ahead of me. Now, I don't cross the street to follow him because that would be stalking. But I take off down that street, walking as fast as I can. If he looks over in my direction, I slow down, be cool. And then when he looks ahead again, I just book and we arrive at the next street corner at the same time together. He turns to the right, so I cross the street, come up behind him quickly, and say loudly, Mr. Williams. He, he turns around, and he says, hello. Have you ever known me to be speechless? I'm like, I think I was drooling. I don't know about… But um, he waits kind of an awkward moment. Because in my mind, I'm going, this is my opportunity for a conversation with Robin Williams. And I got nothing. I mean, he's rich and famous. I'm a nobody from nowhere. I don't deserve to be in this moment. I don't belong. This guy is out of my league. And finally, he sticks out his hand. And we shake hands. And still, I got nothing. And finally, he was like, well, it's a lovely evening, isn't it? He turns and walks away, and I'm like, you idiot. (laughs) I told you that true story. Uh, My blundering and blithering with Robin Williams to share with you this profound statement that he once made. He said these words. He said, I used to think that the worst thing in life was to end up alone. It's not. The worst thing in life is to end up with people who make you feel alone. So I thought, man, oh my gosh, I don't know about you. Have you ever been around people like that? They just kind of shut you out, make you feel less. uh, Have you ever been places that feel that way just to walk in them, just to be in them, that make you feel more alone? Well, that's one thing, one quality I never, never, never want to have happen here at Central Christian This church, I mean, this is where we all, every kind of person, every culture person, every color person, we all belong to Jesus, and we belong to each other. It may not happen any other place, not at work, maybe not at school, but here, here, this is the place, Central Christian, where we belong, belong to Jesus, belong to each other. Um... When I was in high school, my best friend's dad passed away. And this is the kind of best friend we played ball together, we double dated together. Um, he was like, in that time, an essential part of my life. And I mean, what do you do when you lose someone that you love deeply and dearly? And so I invited him to church. And I was surprised, it blew me away. He came and he sat through um, listening to. A bunch of out-of-date songs being sung in an out-of-date way, he tolerated an irrelevant uh, message, and when he left, never came back. Now by that time, as a teenager, I'd already received the call of God to be a minister. And I just, in that moment, in that time, in that experience, I made a decision. If I ever got the chance to lead a church, it was never going to be like that one. It was never going to be a place where people who had real needs came, didn't find any help, didn't find any hope, and felt like they did not belong. I wanted this church. I mean, for the last 38 years of my ministry here, God has been forging this church into a dynamic community where everyone belongs Every kind of person, every color of person, every culture person, everyone here finds unconditional love, unconditional dignity, unconditional respect. Now, this is a multi-generational church. We got four different generations that come together at all of our different campuses, 10 different services a weekend, and I'm going to talk about generations. Next week is my generation, the biggest generation ever, the baby boomers. But today, I'm going to drill down into belonging by talking to you about the builder generation, the, uh, what is called the greatest generation ever, and for good cause. People born between 1925, 1945, man, they ad- endured horrific, ongoing experiences. Uh, the Great Depression, when 30% of the nation was unemployed. When the fertile farmland turned into a dust bowl, not enough food to go around. Hard, hard time. World War II unfolded. 80 million lives lost in World War II. But that generation, the greatest generation caught in food lines, fighting the World War, defeating Nazism, defeating imperialism. Literally, that generation saved the world. And when they came back from World War II, they built the U.S. They built our hospitals, our schools, our bridges, our roads, our national parks. And anything my generation has done is simply built on what the builders have already constructed in our behalf. Let me show you a, a picture of my favorite builders So my mom and dad, my dad recently turned 91, my mom will be 87 this coming month, and she weighs, I'd be kicked out of the will. (laughs) No, let me give you a handful of words that define my parents and other members of the builder generation. First of all, they're practical people. They spent much of their life doing without, and so they are very resourceful. You will not find any more empty cottage cheese containers on the planet than at my mom's house. They don't throw stuff away because there were times in their life when they didn't have anything. They know how to save money. They live in a very practical, thrifty way, but they are also very generous. They will give you the shirt off their own back. You're too young to know that. That generation... Man, they would give you anything if you were. They may not have much. My dad grew up without electricity, without indoor plumbing, without running water until he's 21 years old. But if you were in need, man, they were right there to help you. They're also a very relational generation. When I was home recently with my Debbie at my mom and dad's house to celebrate my dad's 91st birthday, their favorite thing is just to sit down at the table, maybe a plate of cookies cup of coffee and just talk. They're great listeners, but they're also great storytellers about the different significant aspects of their life. They just love to be together in relationship. They're very responsible people. They know how to work. They know how to get the job done. My dad is 91 and he still works a 75 by 75 foot garden. He works for 10 minutes, sits and rests for 10 minutes, still works more than I do. They know how to work, and they're very proper. They they understand something that we've lost in the ensuing generations. They know how to be courteous. They know what it means to have manners. They know how to be polite. They know how to respect authority. They don't just give uh, respect to people who deserve it. They give respect unconditionally. And finally, they are loyal. Man, they have been loyal to their jobs like nobody ever Ever since. Loyal in their marriages. My mom and dad this summer will have been married 70 years. Loyal to their churches. Loyal to their work. Yeah, loyal to our, our country. Now, if you are a member of this greatest generation ever, the builder generation, if you were born between 1925 and 1945, would you please stand up that we could honor you and thank you for the foundation you've laid for all of us to live on? Would you please stand? We love you. We thank God for you. We're glad you're a part of this church. You belong. And I know many of you, you've been here longer than I have, and you've had to endure. You've been willing to celebrate all the changes that have happened in the way that we do church, and you've done it because you love Jesus, and you want to see every single person He wants to bring here come here. And so we're going to celebrate the different generations over the course, and we're going to have iconic songs for each generation. But today it's the builders. And to illustrate, I'm going to take you into the Word of God, the life of Jesus, and introduce you to two biblical builders. Now to do this, because here's what I see happening in this account written by a historian named Luke. I see God maneuvering, God arranging, God orchestrating to have people experience Jesus. In fact, it's what he's done with you today he maneuvered in your week he orchestrated he arranged so that you would be here and you said yes somehow you you agreed with his movement in your life and you came to the place exactly where he wanted you to be at exactly the time he wanted you to be here so you could experience jesus well, to see it happen in this story i want us to get a a bird's eye view of the temple mount in the old city of jerusalem here's a picture google earth This is the Temple Mount, much as it looked like in the day of Jesus, except that's a Muslim mosque with the gold dome. That wasn't there in the day of Jesus. But if you could go about five miles south of this picture, you would come upon the sleepy little village of Bethlehem, a little village of shepherds where Jesus was born. In fact, walking down the five-mile path from Bethlehem, To this temple in Jerusalem is a young married couple named Mary and Joseph. And Joseph has in one hand, actually he's got one arm around his wife's waist, and in the other hand he's carrying a birdcage with two doves. Now this is an indication, this is a giveaway, that these guys are poor, poor, poor. They got nothing. Because if they had any money at all, he'd be pulling a little lamb. You see, a lamb would cost $2 in that day. Pigeons, 16 cents. They didn't have $2, but they could scrape together 32 cents for the, pig- uh, the doves so they could make a thank you gift to God when they dedicated their son. See, that's what's happening. Mary is carrying close to her breast six-week-old Jesus Now, while this couple makes their way to the temple to thank God for their son and to dedicate Jesus to God, God shows up. If we could go just above the picture into a residence close to the temple, it would be the home of an old man named Simeon. Now, this is a man of God, and I don't know if he's praying, I don't know if he's praising God, I don't know if he's going through scripture, but on this morning, God speaks to him and says, Simeon, I want you to go right now. Don't miss your moment, man. This is number one item on your bucket list. Go to the temple now, and you will meet the Savior of the world. And so, man, he drops whatever he's doing. As Mary and Joseph, as we see them coming from Bethlehem to the temple, he busts out his front door, and he's making a beeline for the temple, not knowing what God is doing, not knowing what God is arranging, not knowing what God is maneuvering. At the very same time, at the temple, on that open white space, is an old, old, old woman, over 100 years old. Her name is Anna, and all she likes to do is hang out on the temple grounds. I mean, she'll get so consumed with praying and praising God, she didn't even think about eating. And on this day, while she's praying, while she's praising, while she's worshiping, God gives her a nudge, whispers over her soul, and says, Anna. Anna. This is the moment you've dreamed of all your life. Go now, and you will meet the Redeemer of the world. Boom. She moves. And it's, for me, from that perspective, a breathtaking moment as Simeon, Mary, and Joseph with a six-week-old baby Jesus, and Anna all show up at the same moment at the same place. And I think Mary's eyes kind of get big, and maybe Joseph steps forward as Simeon takes the little baby out of Mary's arms, holds him. The force of the Greek language that Luke wrote in indicate that Simeon held Jesus close to his chest, probably just breathed in that baby smell and rubbed his cheek against that little baby head. And then he lifted Jesus up to God. And Jesus was probably flailing and cooling. And, and Simeon says, now I can die a happy man. I have seen the Savior. I have seen the Savior, Lord, that you have given the world. Now, obviously, this is the per- first public appearance of Jesus. It's his first appearing and there's evidence in the rest of this account, and you can read it yourself when you get home. I love telling the story. Read it yourself in Luke 2. But there's evidence in the text that it also points to the next, the final, the second coming of Jesus. When, when, at that moment, whenever it is... We will be caught unawares. We won't see it coming. It won't be on our radar. But on that day, in the blink of an eye, the last trumpet will sound, and the skies will be torn asunder, and there will be seated our Savior in a white stallion, His name on His thigh, fire in His eyes, and He has come to claim His church and gather us into glory with Him forever in heaven, where we'll get to do what we love best with those we love most. So anyway, we've got these two bookends, the the two appearings of Jesus, his birth when he comes as God, this is God come to earth through human birth, a baby born to a virgin, fully God, fully man, and then his final coming, his second coming, but in between, in between Jesus makes all kinds of appearances. I believe he appeared in your life this week, and in that appearance he put his arm around you whispered in your ear to get you to this place at this moment, even for this talk, but most importantly, for you to experience him personally and profoundly. You see, this is the essence of what's called the gospel. And if you're unfamiliar um, with our church or the Christian faith, here's the gospel in a nutshell. Christ died, you know that, on the cross, but it was for our sins When he was on the cross, you've got that image. You've seen that before. That was in your place. That was as my substitute. That was Jesus taking all the punishment due us for all our sin. The consequence of every bad thought, every bad behavior, every bad word fell on him so we would be free, so that we would not die. So the the punishment that he suffered was so that we would be at peace, at peace with God and have this inner peace that defies all all understanding. And then three days later, God raises Jesus from the dead. That's Easter. That's victory. That's the ultimate, unstoppable, victorious power of God that we can experience. That's the whole deal. So when Jesus is risen from the dead, he starts making appearances. He shows up to his brother, James, who didn't believe that Jesus was God. It's like, James, check out the scars, man. I'm back from the day. Shows up to his mom. Shows up to small groups of people, like the 11 apostles. Shows up to huge crowds of people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And I believe he shows up still. I believe Jesus' favorite thing to do is to show up and show off in our lives. Maybe you ask, maybe you wonder, how come Those two older people, an old guy like Simeon and a really, really, really old person like Anna, how come they get to be the first two to see Jesus in his first public appearing? Why them? Well, Luke wants us to ask that question. Luke is writing this whole book, this whole treatise, this whole account of Jesus for one guy, his best friend, Theophilus, and he wants Theophilus to wrestle with that question just like he wants us to. Because there are traits within Simeon and Anna that made them perfect candidates to experience Jesus showing up and showing off in their lives. And when we, when we integrate these qualities in our own lives, man, we just give Jesus free reign to show up and work everything together for the good, show up with miracles, show up with wonders. Show up with his grace, show up with his mercy, show up with his power, show up with his peace, show up with his love, show up with his hope, show up with everything we need in abundance. So, let me just quickly give you, as I tell this story, the three traits that Luke uses to say, this is why these got it, and these guys got it, and there's a whole bunch of people that didn't. So, you can get it, even if no one else does. Here's number one word they are described by this Greek word chaos, which is a person who genuinely lives by their faith. They live out their faith. If they say they believe it, that's how they live. They're not one thing in church on the weekend and another thing Monday at work. Monday at work, they're living out their faith. They don't just talk a good game. They walk what they talk. They don't, they're not all blow. They're show. They lay it all in the field for the Lord. They live their faith authentically. Number two, the second word, Greek word, is ulabes, and this refers to a person who arranges their life around worshiping God. Not like the average person in the average church today who goes to church about once a month. Uh Uh-uh, that wasn't Jesus. Scripture says it was his habit, it was his pattern. He was in worship every weekend without fail because he arranged his life about being in worship on the weekend. And that was these guys. And that's true of you and me. When we make our lives all about worship, here Sunday on the weekend, that sets God free, that sets Jesus free to show up and show off in your life, to show up and show off in your finances, to show up and show off in your emotions, to show up and show off in your parenting, to show up and show off in your relationships. When we arrange our lives around the worship of our Jesus, he shows up and shows off in our lives. Here's the final word. Prosperity. Decomai is a confident belief in the promises of God, that they, these guys just anchored their lives, that if I live this way, God will deliver on all His promises. Ray taught us last week that if God says it, we believe it, that, that settles it. That's these guys. And that's why Jesus appeared to them first. That's why they got this moment. They weren't going to live. I mean, they were going to watch the crucifixion from heaven and weep with the angels when Jesus is slaughtered. They are going to shout and jump up and down when Jesus is risen from the dead. Oh, God, I didn't see that coming. That was stinking awesome but they got to see the little baby and that was enough. Let me die a happy man for I have seen the Savior of the world. Those three qualities that were in them that put them on the receiving end of a Jesus who shows up and shows up, those qualities can be in me and those, I long for those qualities. I pray for those qualities. And so here's how it happened. In Jerusalem, this is the story from Luke 2, at that time, a man of faith He lived that faith. Named Simeon, he lived prayerfully expecting God to help. Now, that word help, uh, we might translate it from the Greek as comfort. A fort is a place of strength. God comes alongside us in our weakness with his strength. Strength that we don't have. Intellect that we don't have. Charisma that we don't have. Money that we don't have. Joy that we don't have. He comes with comfort. He comes with strength in the face of our weakness. See, everybody needs help sometime, right? But the people who get God's miraculous help are those who expect God to help. There's a whole world of difference between needing help and expecting God to bring the help, to bring the comfort, to bring the strength, to bring even the miracle, whatever it takes. He prayerfully expected God to help. It's one of the reasons that my Debbie and I um, take communion and pray together every night. Because we prayerfully expect God to help our children and our grandchildren, our church, our finances, it reminds me of another text we find in the Word of God where it says, let us come boldly. Say boldly. boldly. No, not like you're bored. Like you're on steroids, okay? Let us come boldly. Yeah, baby, now we're bold. Let us, why would we come boldly? Why do David and Debbie? I'll tell you a sad thing about our family When we pray, after we pray, we have three oyster crackers for communion. One for me, one for Debbie, one for our dog. I'm serious. And when I say amen, that that dog knows it's cracker time, baby. We have this, we have this, we have this super confidence that God is hearing our prayers about our finances, that God is hearing our prayers when we are in distress over our children or our grandchildren. Well, God, God hears our prayers over our church, over your lives, over hurting children, over broken people. Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious. That means giving. Our extravagantly giving God, there we will receive his mercy. Mercy is when God protects you from bad stuff you deserve for bad stuff you've done, but you don't get the bad stuff when you come boldly because he protects you from from the bad stuff. And, And you will find grace, grace is gifts you don't deserve, good gifts that God just lavishes on your life when you come boldly before his throne, prayerfully expectant that God will help. We will find grace to help us when we need it most. Well, at that very same moment that um, Simeon is holding up that baby, Anna steps right into that moment. Here's the text. Coming up to them at that very moment, Anna gave thanks. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Oh, my God. Thank you, God. And she spoke about the child. Anybody walking by, she takes the baby in her arms. She's like, this is the Redeemer. Say, Redeemer. Yeah, because Redeemer is everything about Jesus, that means He's the one when you are in trouble, He comes and rescues, delivers, and saves. When you are stuck in impossibly painful situations, He's the one who comes with help and with healing and with hope and miraculously removes the impossibility Redeemer means that whatever ugly happens to you, your fault, somebody else's fault, just life, he comes and brings beauty out of that ugliness. He, wherever you're broken, and we're all broken, but he comes and brings a wholeness, that's redeeming. In fact, we pray Psalm 103 every night, redeem us from the pit. And crown us with your love and compassion. That's what he does. Wherever you're in a pit, a parenting pit, a financial pit, a marital pit, a friendship pit, an emotional pit, he comes and redeems you from the pit. He's not satisfied just to get you out of the dark pit. He wants to crown you with his love and compassion. We got a good Jesus. We got an awesome Jesus. We got a wonderful Jesus. He is the redeemer of God's people. Now, something happens in this moment that I saw about a year and a half ago, the last time we were in Jerusalem, and I was approaching that temple site with other people from our church. I was at the base of it, at what's called the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. I got my baseball cap on backwards in memory of CJ. I got my baseball cap on backwards because I'm going to press my head against that wall and I'm going to put my hands against that wall and I'm going to take little pieces of paper that talk about our church and my family and stick them in that wall and I'm going to call down the goodness of God on that wailing wall. But before I get there, I see this older man and he's got his hands on the shoulders of an adult man, younger than the older guy, and the older guy is speaking the blessings of God over the younger guy. And the younger guy's standing there, tears are streaming down his cheeks, and the older guy, tears are streaming down his cheeks, and he's just speaking love into this guy, and he's speaking life into this guy, and he's speaking courage into this guy, and he's speaking blessing in the favor of God into this guy. And I was just struck in the moment. I just stood there and watched. I know it was rude and they didn't care. They didn't even know I was there because they were engaged in this moment. That's what happens in this text. That's what happens in this account. I believe that Simeon takes Joshua, the father of the six-year-old baby Jesus, and he just goes off on him speaking the blessings of God and the favor of God and speaking life and, and love. And then when he's done, he turns to Mary. And starts to tell her things are going to happen because of this six-year-old baby that has now been placed back in her arms. In fact, he climaxes his words with this statement. Simeon said to Mary, a sword will pierce. Say "Pierce." pierce. Yeah, pierce. Scary pierce. No way. Please, no. Don't say that. Pierce. A sword will pierce your heart. And it happened. I don't think it happened when they had to flee to Egypt to get away from Herod's wrath and the slaughter of other little, bit, other little boys under the age of two. I don't think it happened when they returned to Nazareth and Jesus worked in the carpenter shop with his dad being apprenticed into that trade. I don't think it happened when Jesus left home. For his ministry, he was baptized. I don't think it happened when Jesus was teaching these phenomenal truths. I don't think it happened when Jesus was working these unprecedented miracles, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind. I think it happened. Not when the spikes went through his wrist and through his ankles, but I think it happened when that Roman soldier went over at the foot of the cross, picked up a spear, found that place right at the edge, right right under the ribcage, and shoved that spear right through Jesus' heart. Pulled that spear out, out the wound came water and blood, irrefutable evidence that Jesus is dead. When that sword came out and blood and water came out, or that spear came out, I believe it was like a, a sword just cleaved Mary's heart in two, there at the foot of the cross, watching her 33 year old son in his death throes, his last breath. There was scripture that says Jesus had no place to lay his head. But when a victim of crucifixion died, they died like this, <gasps> struggling for their last breath. Finally, Jesus has a place to lay his head against the, against the cross. It was in that moment that Mary's heart was pierced in two. So Simeon continues to speak over her these words. This child that you're holding, this six, six week old baby boy, will be rejected by many. Most people will turn their backs on Jesus. Ah, oh, good teacher. Ah, oh, great philosopher, but not God in the flesh, not Savior of the world. And this to their own undoing. But he will be the greatest joy to many others and the deepest thoughts of many hearts. Will be revealed. How is it that my deepest thoughts are going to be revealed? How is it that your deepest thoughts about Jesus are going to be revealed? It's like a, 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 a sword is going to slice open your heart and your deepest thoughts are just going to be put out there about Jesus. Last night I had a 20-something young woman named Maria come forward at the end of my talk because her heart had been pierced. It was like the whole message was specifically designed for her, and there was all kinds of chaos last night and technical problems, but through all that mess, the Holy Spirit pierced her heart, and she and her brother, Lucille, I remember his name because it's so unusual, went home with tons of Scripture on baptism to come back next week and be baptized, but her heart got pierced. In fact, the very first time after the crucifixion of Jesus, after the resurrection of Jesus, that Peter gets a chance to pray, preach. He preaches this message. That Jesus that was here six weeks ago, the one that you slaughtered on a cross, yeah, what of it, that was God's son. No way, way. And he gives them all the Bible proofs that Jesus is the son of God. He said, and God on the third day raised him from the dead. Those words from Peter, look what happened. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said, what shall we do? And Peter said, change your life. Be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins are forgiven. I was praying with Maria down here. She's all my sins are going to be forgiven. Yeah, not just that, but your guilt and shame are going to be cleansed. You're going to come up out of that water next week, a brand new young woman. A brand she, guess why? She has a six-week-old baby son that she named Matthew, which means gift of God. But she just felt like this story was her story, and she wanted Jesus. Your sins are forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now I've got some, some of my friends being baptized today. And a part of what the big benefit of what they're going to go through is that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit of God. And that's how you live your faith authentically. You live what you say, believe, not because you're so smart or so so talented or got it in you, but because the Holy Spirit enables you. You're able to anchor your life to all the promises of God by the power and person of the Holy Spirit living in you that you receive at baptism. So, I'm going to pray that your heart is pierced right now, if you'll stand with me and receive this prayer. I wish I could come alongside each one of you and look you in the eye and put my hands on your shoulders and speak this prayer right into your heart, but I'll let the Holy Spirit do that right now as we bow our heads together and pray. Our Father, um, I just, my longing would be that every single person in this room receives the Holy Spirit now by being joined with Jesus in baptism, having all their sins washed away, being cleansed of all guilt and shame, being raised up into the superabundant life of Jesus. So Father, I'm just going to give you the freedom. Would you please go around this room and pierce all the hearts? I mean, pierce a heart like mine that I would be more grateful for what you've done for me as a Christ follower. Pierce the hearts of those who've decided to follow Jesus but are yet to take this step of baptism. Pierce the hearts of those who've been putting it on the back burner, on delay. Procrastinating a profound spiritual experience. Would you be piercing hearts now and helping hearts and healing hearts? We pray expectantly and boldly before your throne of grace, anticipating your mercy and help in the time of our need. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. Just a reminder to stay connected with us throughout the week at centralwire.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for being with us and have a great week.